HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, home of New York's craft cider. Plan your getaway at visitithaca.com. Welcome back to Hardcore. It's been a minute. The first season of Hardcore came out before the pandemic. And while we're still drinking cider, the world is a very different place. That's why we're coming back to you with season two. In the first season of Hardcore, we explored the history of cider and the flavors of America's cider-making regions. We learned about the science behind farming and fermentation and heard from industry leaders about the future of this distinctive beverage. We learned a lot in the first season, but we were left with some questions. I'm Hannah Forden. I hosted the first season of Hardcore on my own, but for this season, I wanted to invite my amazing producer and collaborator, Dylan Hoyer, to join the conversation as she's been on this journey with me the whole time. Hey, Dylan. Hi, Hannah. So, yeah, we worked on the series in the first season, and it was really fun to sort of let it take shape. We had way, way more tape uh, than we could possibly use from all the brilliant people we spoke with. And just this last fall, we went back to Ithaca, New York, which is a really important place in the world of cider here on the East Coast. And we had a really fun time. We were so excited to journey up. And it was my first time meeting a lot of the cider makers from our first season. And I drank some good cider. We ate some great food. And we sang some really great songs on our road trip. This is true. Most importantly. Good for you to know. As we talked about a lot in the first season, um, and I'll just say that if you haven't listened to season one of Hardcore, I would recommend it before you jump into this second season. There's a lot of really interesting and useful background information about the history of the beverage and the people who are sort of leading its resurgence today. Yeah, in our first season, we covered so much ground, starting with, you know, the first apple that came from Kazakhstan all the way to marketing and what the cider industry looks like today. But I think we were really left with some questions that we've just kind of kept coming back to since that first season. And I think, you know, even though we went all the way back to Kazakhstan and we touched on what heritage means... This history was really the tip of the iceberg, especially our conversation about land access and equity. And we wanted to know 
what has changed and what's going on today. We wanted to look specifically at the history of New York and we wanted to know how are cider makers trying to correct the racial divide that we're seeing in terms of land equity. And aside from um, focusing on our home state of New York um, and where we really centered our first season, we're excited to explore other regions in the U.S. because cider is being made all across the country. Um, and so we want to get into the nitty gritty of the terroir of the cider, how we can taste the different places, whether that's in the Midwest or on the West Coast, and also get nerdy and learn about the different apple varieties that flourish there. I've been curious what apples were here before European settlers came and what apple culture predates cider even. And one thing that we really need to know is how old heritage apple varieties can help the future of pomology as we look at a future uh, filled with climate crises. Like, what would it mean if we logged every single apple variety into one database? And why are apples more resilient than grapes? And could apples start looking appealing to winemakers in the face of climate change? We have so much in store for you over the next three episodes. And we're going to give you just a little peek. Crabapple wood is also very strong and flexible. The branches are springy, and I remember one elder telling me uh, they would hang um, a baby basket or cradle from a from a crabapple branch while the mother's busy digging roots or picking crabapples. Midwest is a big cider drinking town. Chicago loves cider. Um, Michigan is, is a big state for cider. Um, there's, they make a lot more um, canned cider in the Midwest, I would say. So um, colleagues at uh, Washington State University and at Minnesota, University of Minnesota, are developing a very large database. It's actually um, international at this point with uh, varieties from collections from around the world. So that way, if somebody were to say, I'm not sure what this apple variety is I have, they can send it in to a lab and get them positively ID'd and say, well, this is in our database and we know it to be Harrison. Or they could say, this is not in our database. Um, this is potentially a novel variety. And here the name is being, you know, here you have a bunch of, a bunch of Devonshire Corndon, Worcester, Worcester Pyrmon, Early Spice. Court of Wick. Joanne Tang. Yeah, exactly. Carrie Pippin. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're just so lyrical, actually. You know, they, they, they read almost reads like a novel. And again, um, you know, fairly long descriptions here. Um, oh, histories in the Middle yeah, Ages. So there's like four paragraphs mm -hmm. about the Joanne Ting. We can't wait to travel through history and across the U.S. with you. Today, we'll start our journey at the root. Cider is, first and foremost, an agricultural product. Before labeling, bottling, and fermentation, all cider starts out on the tree. We can't talk about farming in the U.S. without talking about land access. According to a 2017 report from the USDA of about 3 million farms, 
95% of farmer producers in this country were white. And 65% of all farmers identify as male. So when it comes to land access and ownership, there is hardly a more stark example of systemic racism in action. After emancipation, Black Americans were slowly able to gain land access and ownership, eventually owning around 14 million acres of farmland. But according to the USDA census I mentioned earlier, over the course of the 20th century, it's estimated that more than 90% of that land has been lost. Now, the reasons for that shift are numerous. They're deeply rooted in racism in, within communities, and local governments have historically made it difficult for Black farmers to benefit from government support programs. Industrialization brought the Great Migration, where many from agricultural communities left for cities, where jobs were higher paying and plentiful. And some families lost ownership of their land simply because of record-keeping issues or straight-up land theft. We could make a whole podcast about land loss and land theft. But right now, let's suffice it to say that it is difficult to be a farmer in this country. That statement is many times more true for farmers of color. Now, that lack of representation in farming results in the same deficit in the world of cider making. So today we're going to learn about some individuals and organizations who are working to rebalance, repair, and regrow. My name is Kristen Nunez, and I run the Learning Farm in Ithaca, New York, and also our sister nonprofit organization, Kuba International, with a project called Quarter Acre for the People and Ubuntu Library, amongst others. We are here on the farm, and it is a 16-acre teaching farm where we have a lot of young people running around, a lot of families coming through learning about sustainable agriculture and how to create community uh, in our food system. Our main goal here is to create what we call farmer scholars. So the idea is helping people really understand all the interwoven intricacies of our food system and how to grow food and how to feed people, as well as being able to just get your hands in the dirt, really grow food to, for your personal purposes and um, be able to have a business and understand all those things as well as practice them. So there's five pathways, but Quarter Acre um, really right now is focused on pathway four, which is cooperative farm development and cooperative ownership of land. So BIPOC and white allies getting together in groups of 10-ish, um, 10 families slash individuals getting together, owning land together, developing farm infrastructure together, developing eco-dwellings together, and beginning to learn what it is to create community in a multicultural sense. Um, and so that's been amazing to be able to, we're going to be buying a piece of land for a group of people. We're having our first meeting on the 14th of this month and really diving into helping people understand what cooperation means, what it means to um, think about business, not just in terms of you know, I'm passionate about making a lot of money and enriching myself, but be, building a business that really is supportive of community, that is cooperative, that you are working in tandem with other people who have just as much a say as you without any hierarchical structures to disrupt our humanity. We spoke with Krista about her exciting new project, which will be creating a case study for communal living and farming. And above all, this work will create a model that could make land access 
easier for first-generation owners and growers. So we intentionally invited uh, folks from the Gaiokono Nation here in Ithaca um, of the Finger Lakes, the Haudenosaunee, um, lots of Black folks, uh, some Latinos, um, the Karen people who are um, here from, from Burma and Thailand who were displaced from their land. They're um, really coming together with white allies who um, have an interest in cooperating with BIPOC people. And so just a smattering of different people from different backgrounds is really what we wanted because we see clearly that in this world, we've been divided from each other, um, especially along racial lines. If they're not your neighbor, if you're not developing something or in relationship with each other, all kinds of bad things happen. And when we intentionally put people together that have been separated historically. Krista was able to give us a zoomed out view of these issues, which are super helpful in getting some context. And she gives us some really helpful information on the specific history of these issues in New York State. We were looking at a a report that discussed the inequities around people living in natural environments or farm environments. And we were shocked to see that New York State is the biggest culprit of inequities around where you live um, in terms of a stressful urban environment versus a natural peaceful environment being divided along racial lines, um, even worse than Alabama, even worse than Mississippi, even, you know, and like, we were like shocked to see that 87% of European American people, white people um, lived in sort of areas that were green versus 13% of people of color living in areas that were green. And that was the biggest divide in the country statewide um, compared to other states. And so as we look sort of more micro region, um, looking at the Finger Lakes, there's been a long history of land theft. Um, The Gayakono people, by and large, having to move to Canada, being displaced to Canada over a period of almost 100 over 100 years, and then gradually coming back and having to fight even the U.S. government still with the Bureau of of Indian Affairs, still being predatory in terms of how they are managing their land and allowing them different things. And so there's that, because we are on Gayakono land, and I think that's primary to talk about that. And then throughout enslavement, Black folks have migrated to New York, even during slavery, escaping slavery, freed folks trying to farm here, um, having land stolen. There's a long and deep history of, um, if you look at Manhattan, you know, the Central Park was a black neighborhood, basically, (laughs) that was stolen and then converted to a park and people were just sort of shoved off or paid nominal fees for their land. And, And then you had some farmers here who, through extremely high property taxes and other practices and redlining and yada, yada, not being able to stay on their land once it was purchased um, and not being able to have what a lot of local farmers have, these really amazing, my family's been here for 200 years. We've been dairy farmers for 160 years. I have these conversations all the time and you don't hear of that within any other community in the Finger Lakes region. And so now we have... You know, there's over, in terms of the USDA reporting, there are now three black farmers 
in terms of the most recent census in Tompkins County that are registered as black farms. Um, it could that number could be four, but I'm I, I know exactly the three that that were reported, and there might be a fourth now um, that will probably come out in the next census. And so that was that's up from one. You know, Rocky Acres Community Farm in Freeville, Rafa Ponte was the solo person for a long time. And then there's been a couple people, including myself, popping up. So how can cider, an industry that's deeply rooted in the land and community, become a place where equity can grow and flourish? New York State is the fertile heart of the new wave of cider making. And as we learned in our first season, the state is providing legislative and fiscal support to agricultural businesses that makes cider making more sustainable than ever. This is why it's important to look closely at who has access to this booming industry. Because you can't grow food or make cider without land. Dylan and I spent a lot of time in Ithaca, New York last season, and we're really excited to come back this year. The region around the Finger Lakes has an incredibly rich cider culture, and the people behind it care so deeply about their local community. You might remember Deva Moss and Eric Schott from Redbird Cider. They, along with a group of other independent cider makers in the area, came together to support Krista's work. And when they came to me with this idea, um, we were like, wow, what an amazing thing. Tell me more. And so the way it works is that when they are ready and they have cider that they, they can allocate towards this project, tends to be about twice a year so far, that they will offer it as a reparations package. And then people, when they purchase it, after bottles and other basic um, sort of, you know, foundational things are paid for, all the, the anything above that uh, is donated. And it's been a couple thousand dollars so far, which has been wonderful to be able to support our programming. Deva Moss and her husband and business partner, Eric Schott, see the role of cider as more than a delicious beverage. In addition to making a world-class product, they firmly recognize the responsibility that they have as stewards of the land and community members. Melissa and Autumn and I, so Eves and Open Spaces and me from Redbird, um, we had started a weekly conversation, I think even before the package of just being an accountability group for each other for how to move forward in the world as individuals but also as business owners and in in striving towards creating a world with more racial equity and specifically looking at agriculture and so the reparations package came about first and then it was making a decision about where the money would go to um, where the reparations would be paid and there was a few to kind of think about and we chose quarter acre for the people because it seemed as closely in line with what we all do as businesses and specifically looking at land access for farming um, and so that it was kind of a, a perfect fit the goal of the program is kind of of the reparations package for us as cider makers is kind of two or threefold one is um, you know it allows us to to have a vehicle of of uh, putting our like I don't know 
stance into action. Um, and then second, it, it begins the process of normalizing reparations, um, which is super duper important, I feel like, to like move the conversation forward. Um, and we wanted to frame it as reparations, not donations um, and not charitable work, but like our responsibility to our community. Um, and it is, I think having cider as the vehicle is a way to bring people together. Um, and it, and it brings your, one thing Autumn says, which I love is, is that, you know, it brings your senses, other senses into it. So the conversation is allowed to go different places. And I think it stays in you in a different way. If you're talking and drinking, like it like puts it in your body in this way that is important. Deva brings forward the idea of normalizing reparations. Even with national awareness of systemic racism at a high point because of the Black Lives Matter movement, reparations can be a hard concept for some white folks to wrap their heads around. Now, I have a sort of silly but useful parallel that I want to share with you. So 10 years ago, the average drinker wasn't accustomed to ordering cider at their local bar. Artisanal cider was totally new to most and a big departure from wine and beer. Now today, thanks to the hard work of cider makers and advocates, it's widely accepted and totally normalized on the menu. So, not to oversimplify, but what can we learn from that work of normalizing cider that might translate into the fight for racial equity and reparations? Here are Eric and Deva. I, I think I think that um, for most people, including myself, we don't we don't we 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 like to think that we're great <laughs> in every way, and it's sometimes hard to uh, admit that there's faults, right? That we that we have you know in some ways not been the best we could be, and maybe it's not our fault that we're that way, and so I think that's the hard part for a lot of people, especially Americans, is is actually um, being able to put yourself in a space, kind of like, kind of like remove yourself from the situation and look down on, on it and, and just recognize that, yes, this is here. It's here. And, and it's great to, to work through it. So the, the thing we, the, the three cideries really wanted to, to make sure was a, the starting point from it wasn't the question of why reparations, but was reparations. And this is one one possible way. Like, what are the ways? And this is one way to do it and to um, to have joy be a part of that. Um, it, there's a lot that isn't joyful at all, but that it doesn't, it can, reparations can be made in a way that is joyful, which makes it less scary. Commensality, the pleasure of sharing food and drink around a communal table can present a useful tool for organizing and creating a dialogue around racial inequity. After George Floyd's killing in May of last year, um, you saw lots of businesses, not just young progressives, recognizing that they had, that 
statements needed to be made or this or that. And some people did it in a performative way, but some people started to relook at it. And I think that was across the board in all different um, age brackets and ownership ways and how long businesses have been around. The reparations package takes a step away from a charitable or philanthropic model, which makes an important distinction when we're talking about this issue. They're paying directly into the work that Krista does as a reparations payment from the community. It's the cideries making the reparation payment. And we are able to do that because people are buying the cider. Because in true reparations, somebody wouldn't be getting cider in exchange for making a reparation payment, right? Like, that's not what reparations are about. But it was a way not—it was a way— to make it the second step where it wasn't just us as cidery saying, okay, we're going to make sure this percentage of our profit goes towards reparations. It was a way to say we're, we can, we'll have this percentage go towards reparations and we're bringing these other people into the conversation because I think there's the reparations and then there's the, the, the mindset around it and the information around it and the 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 hope that it grows and expands for because wherever anybody is living um it it in this country it is a necessary and needed thing so it's a way to expand the conversation which we felt like is also the responsibility of us as white farmers so my hope is that it's not just young people you know, I mean, we're not young anymore, <laughs> I guess, even, or young industry. Hopefully that's something we're going to see more and more, mm-hmm. that there is a responsibility with being a small business owner, no matter what industry you're in, and that consumers are holding people more accountable. I think that there is a movement here, maybe because it's a lot of first generation, that there's a little bit more flexibility in how to do things. But even... You know, there's some cider makers and growers in the community that have been growing here since the 80s. And I think they're and and they're right in there with it all. You know, like there's a bunch of people at the table in each cidery. There's people working in the fields. There's people in the cider room and people are talking with each other and ideas are fomenting and coming about and things are happening. We're going to take a quick break. And we'll come back with more Hardcore coming up. This episode is brought to you by Visit Ithaca, helping you to plan your next getaway. Ithaca has waterfalls and wineries, art and theater, outdoor recreation, and family fun. The area is famous for its glacier-carved gorges, co-op-run businesses, and cultural influences from Cornell University and Ithaca College. Plus, you can't beat the beauty of Cayuga Lake, the largest of the Finger Lakes. Beyond 150 waterfalls and some of the region's best hiking trails, Ithaca is cider. The area is well known for its local cideries, which are leading the way in America's cider revival. There's something really special about Ithaca's climate, for cultivating delicious apples steeped in history and terroir. Let Visit Ithaca help you plan your next trip to this hub of food, drink, culture, and agritourism. 
Get started at visitithaca.com. We've spent the first half of the episode in Ithaca, New York. Now let's take a detour south to Newark, New Jersey. So what is the first thing that you think of when I say Newark? Factories, steel bridges, maybe a glimpse of the Manhattan skyline. Agriculture probably isn't at the top of your mind. Ironbound Cider is a really interesting company. They have a farm market and cider making business growing apples just outside of the city. But while cider is an important part of what they do, the core of what Ironbound is about is community rehabilitation. Meet Charles Rosen, Ironbound's founder. You know, as you said, a sort of white guy. Um, I went to Newark uh, with a level of arrogance, a level of entitlement that just astounds me right now. But, you know, I was like, well, I'm going to, you know, take all my money and come out of a town like Montclair, New Jersey, and I'm going to go to Newark and help black folk. Like the audacity of that kind of liberal elite notion of like helping the downtrodden What started out as an idealistic vision has turned into a really valuable resource for the Newark community. Their mission is to provide hands-on professional training and employment to folks who are formerly incarcerated, like James Williams. I'm also the crew chief out here. I I, I do the maintenance. I do the field work. I do mostly everything that the farm needs done because I'm multitask. I'm very diverse out here in the farm. So that's what I do out here. I do what, what, what needs to be done. That's me. Well... Basically, when I was released from prison um, four, five years ago, six years ago, I had a few guys that was up here working, and most importantly, my brother Antoine. And um, he came to me with an opportunity. He asked me, "Yo, do you want to?" Um, he got a good friend, you know, that's doing this class about um, incarceration and stuff like that. I sat there and I gave Charles a listen, and his vision sounded like everything I could um, step into. Like I, I really appreciated that he was trying to get a um, guys a chance, a second chance of, of earning a pay and, and working. You know what I mean? Because a lot of guys, you know, never had a job. Me myself, only had two in my life, and this was like my first official long Jeopardy job. So. I gave it a shot. I said, what the hell? You know, I could either get back on the street so I could get this uh, opportunity. Today, Ironbound is working to break the cycle of recidivism. According to a 2019 study by the U.S. Sentencing Commission, rates of reincarceration for nonviolent offenders is 40% nationally. What I saw was this, um, you know, ring of tremendous wealth uh, that, that separated urban and and rural poverty in our country and and, and in New Jersey. Um, so it really led us to create this integrated system where I have people at the farm, uh, you know, ex-offenders who are still in their gangs working side by side with guys in Make America Great Again hats as brothers. It's really lovely to see this sort of integrated community around food, the food we were growing and the value add that we were making to get it into this kind of community of wealth. When I spoke with James in the summer of 2020, I asked him about his experience in prison. What sort of structures were available to him for concrete rehabilitation and skills training? Because it seems to me that the only way to help folks out of the cycle is to help offer support in getting legal, well-compensated, and fulfilling work. Yeah, see, the prison system has changed, like, 
a whole, I mean, super duper. When they privatized prison, a lot of them, 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 um, them, them plantation owners, they started taking everything out the prison. So it's like putting a human being in a cage for 23 hours, and, and that's it. That's all. So they took the education out. They took the books out. They took the schools out. The prison is an opportunity of money. It's like. It's like financially where people from the city or, you know, that they just don't got it, it's a quick fix. Like, you know, when you rip in the streets, it's like if you could make a thousand dollars in like two hours, then going to work when you gotta take a whole two weeks or a week or whatever it may take to make that money, you can't work at you can't work and bring home three hundred dollars a week and think you're gonna be able to survive when you got family or you got bills and stuff like that. So that's the separation that the world don't understand about the communities that I come from. Like, we don't want to be in and out of prison, but we don't want to be poor either. So, you know, it's some people going to juggle, and some people going to just give it up and just do extra hours, super hours to bring home a decent check, can't be with their family and friends, but they're doing what they got to do to provide for their family. This brings us back to the issue we presented at the top of the episode land access. In the U.S., poverty is criminalized, and wealth is inherited. And inheriting wealth in this country often comes in the form of property. Now, remember the stats we shared at the top of the episode? More than 90% of farm owners in the U.S. are white. That means that unless significant changes are made, the land will keep getting passed down within families or wind up in the hands of an industrial ag company. Inheriting a house or acreage, not only provides you with housing stability, but it gives you the power to make choices in cooperation with that land. James sees the significance of this. A lot of kids, they they parents own land and they got farmland and and they give it up. Like, I wish I had an opportunity to have a family member that had 500, 100, 200, 300, any acres of land that could give me and say, you know what, you do what you need to do with this. And I could prove them wrong because I know what I can do with it. Yeah, I don't think America understand what they be doing when they when they downplay the farmers in America. Diversity is at the heart of what makes our food system, our world, thrive and flourish. We've seen what monoculture can mean in farming. A lack of biodiversity leaves every plant vulnerable. There's no cross-pollination and no resilience without it. We love cider, the people who make it and the drinkers who savor it. And I am not alone in feeling ready to plant the seeds of change. There was one thing I reminded myself of this morning that I thought you should make sure you say this, and I haven't said it. One of the big reasons um, that we decided to go forward with the reparations package when it was offered was because I believe BIPOC people would be really good at making cider. (laughs) I mean, the quality, I mean, it's just, you taste it and you're like, what? I'm, this is mind-blowing. Like, it's just that your taste buds explode. And I really felt like the marketplace is enriched by people who know how to put forth great product. And I believe in my heart that people who put forth great product, high-quality product, that stems from a love for people and a, and a love for the land. Um, and we all say, you know, um, when you cook something with love, it tastes better. And I, I believe that. And I, I think that people who 
might not know the, you know, the different varietals and all the different soils and how to pH test and how to manage these pests. You know, folks can learn that stuff. But if you love and if you care and you if you have a passion for something, that's what makes high quality products. And I believe that the more people we have doing that and have opportunity to do that, the more our marketplace will just have this delicious stuff that we're like, what? Next time on Hardcore, we'll trace the history of cider culture in North America through stories, archival records, and a taste of place. So, for example, in Haida, the name for crabapple is k'ai, k'ai, which also um, pertains to the sour quality or the tartness of the fruit. And if you were going to say the tree, you would say k'ai hill or which adds the suffix of a plant or tree to it. The American Orchardist, or a practical treatise on the culture and management of apple and other fruit trees with observations on the diseases to which they are liable and their remedies, colon, to which is added the most approved method of manufacturing and preserving cider and also wine from apple juice and currants, colon, adapted to the use of American farmers and all lovers and cultivators of fine fruit. That is all one sentence. Bravo, though. You actually got the title very well. <laughs> cider in the country is different, whether it's made in Pennsylvania, in Adams County, or in Albemarle County, Virginia, or in Vermont, or in Colorado, or Washington State, or California. There's all these really diff- intense differences here of how the cider is produced and how it's made and what it tastes like ultimately. And these differences are a, a function of the history and the culture around them and the kind of resources that have existed for many years. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. Cheers. Hardcore is produced and written by Dylan Hoyer and me, Hannah Forden. This episode was engineered by Michael Edwin. This episode was engineered by Matt Patterson. Hardcore is powered by Simplecast. Hardcore is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. Thanks so much for listening.